Hi everyone and welcome back to the first Causa Club podcast. Today we've got Andrew joining us on the show. Andrew is the founder of Strive Financial Limited, a company that aims to teach the next generation about the future of money. Andrew is an entrepreneur and investor who funded a few companies before and for the past couple of months has been working on Strive and Top Minds, the world's first crypto-focused projects for parents and the younger generations, helping them to learn about finances, digital currencies and also digital collectibles, all in a fun and safe way. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to invite Andrew along. Bit of a mixture, best of both worlds, really. I mean, you've got that experience of businesses, but then also uh, we're very focused in the crypto NFT world at the moment, and we're having a lot of conversations around that. So it would be great to get your experiences and your journey. Thanks, Anna. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's an exciting time in in crypto land. And um, even though there's a little bit of a dip going on at the moment, I think there's so much excitement and potential that that this wave is, is unlocked and um yeah looking forward to chatting about it no welcome yeah thanks for again taking the time um to uh, speak to us just to say as well that andrew's actually in australia um so uh w- what time is it out there at the moment uh it's not too bad it's just 10 past nine in the evening so um yeah pretty friendly hour which is <laughs> yeah. <sleep> and, um, <laughs> it's quite an easy time to do calls right perfect so we'll sort of jump straight into it so looking um I mean, even just on, on your uh, your LinkedIn profile, there's lots and lots and lots of, of things you've been involved with and, and um, projects that uh, that you've been doing. But sort of how did it all start? It sort of bring it back all the way back to your, your education and school life. Um, what was your life in school? How did you find it? Yeah, um, I guess like if I reflect back, um, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship and business um yeah, my, my dad was a was an artist but he was a lecturer so he would you know lecture in fine arts and, and teach people at art school but then he would have um these exhibitions and galleries and you know from a young age we were going to these exhibitions and, and galleries and and dad was selling his works and so i was just kind of always interested in you know the things he was making but also the commerce i think that that went with it you know i was like oh you know why is that this price and why is that and you know i think when i was seven or eight I was encouraging dad to you know triple the price of his artwork um yeah he's really mo- really modest kind of artist um <laughs> and uh, you know it was just a bit of a running joke that i was kind of commercially minded i guess from from that a young age um yeah i studied business at university um yeah i didn't really like university that much because i was always like thinking about entrepreneurial ideas i actually took a year off um to like set up my own events company between like years three and it should have been a, a long story short it should have been a four and a half a three year degree and i took me four and a half years to finish it because i was doing entrepreneurial things <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i had like an events company and we used to bring bands and and things to uh to the university um yeah we had like a little uh yeah i think you know now nowadays you have youtubers but i think we were we thought of ourselves as like a little production company and we were making pilots for tv shows and all these kinds of things when we're at university and none of them ever got off the ground we got we got a few of them like limited budgets to do a pilot but um yeah and then when i left university um funnily enough i actually ended up working for another university um and they this was pretty much my first job it was a commercialization uh, arm of one of the big australian universities and primarily what they would do is you know take ip and innovation and ideas that the professors or the, the faculty had had um, and commercialised that in the open market. So um, 
yeah, I just started like as a marketing graduate there and, you know, simple things like making brochures and getting us ready for conferences and slowly worked my way up into a, like a more product management and, and product development role. Um, so I would just kind of describe that as like an entrepreneur kind of role. Um, and, and that really got me excited about, okay, I think, you know, there's a career path here and taking that out and doing entrepreneurship and, and really doing your own ideas um, rather than perhaps working on someone else's. And when you were at school, university, did you know that you wanted to go down this route? Like, was it always in the back of your mind or like you mentioned your parents and your upbringing? Do you think that has an impact on it? Yeah, I think so. Um, straight after school, I wanted to do a degree. There was a new degree that was launched and you know, I finished. This is showing my age, but I finished school in the year 2000. Um, and so, you know, it was a strange year, the year 2000, because it was coming off just the back of the dot-com boom, the first dot-com boom, are just mm. kind of still going, was still bubbly. And I was really interested in in that part of the world. You know, we had a, we had the internet from 1994 onwards kind of thing. So, um, you know, so I was uh, trying to build websites and had ideas and things around the internet. You know, I used to be on like IRC chat rooms and stuff at, you know, 15 and stuff like that. It's just crazy <laughs> to think back on it. Um, so we were really interested in, in that side of things. Um, and yeah, it was a Bachelor of Entrepreneurship had just launched at this particular university. Uh, and I told my dad today, I said, you know, I had to interview. I got into this Bachelor of Entrepreneurship. It's all about encouraging, you know, 18-year-olds to to get out there and, and build their own business and do their own idea. Um, and I was really excited to, to get into that. And dad said, oh, you know, it's a first-year course. It's a Mickey Mouse degree, you know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think you should do... I think you should do business um, at Monash, which is kind of like uh, it's a you know, reasonably it's not the most prestigious university like in Australia, but it's yeah it's in the top you know four or five mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's not an Oxford or a Cambridge, but um, yeah it's probably that that second that next tier down uh, in Australian terms. And um, it was a good university, but you know those top tier universities are quite dry, quite academic, you know very little focus on um, entrepreneurship in those days. They've, they've gotten better. Um, in the last 15, 20 years. But um, yeah, so my business degree was, you know, accounting, finance, uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics. And I, I think I scraped through all of the subjects, um, except for marketing um, and small business management, which are like that I really were excited about um, or was excited about. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, if I had my time again, if I reflect back on that, um, you know, I should have just done that bachelor of entrepreneurship because that's what i was my passion lay mm. and that's what i wanted to do and, and that whole degree was set up around helping you know kids commercialize their own ideas so um and that's been a very successful course um now too like the, the mickey mouse degree i kind of joke with dad you know it's, into its, 20th. <laughs> <laughs> it's, into its, its 20th year now um and there's been all kinds of amazing graduates and australian entrepreneurs that have gone through that degree so i'm um, it's become a real, yeah, terrific alumni around that. Um, and I ended up doing a master's of entrepreneurship a little bit later, a few years later too. So I kind of, I got to do it in the end, but, um, you know, master's of entrepreneurship is quite funny. It's almost an oxymoron. Like the real, the real degree in entrepreneurship comes from the practice, not necessarily um, the study. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, absolutely. Yeah, you get a couple of failing businesses, but you've got a master in entrepreneurship. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 
it's really interesting actually that you mentioned that because joe and i've just that last episode that we recorded we were having the debate on university versus going to work full-time so just coming out of school and you know like full-time education or actually working um and there's just pros and cons right and i think it does depend but something you picked up on there is you've got to put it into practice and something that i think uh, the the, um, early career programs and things like that that are, are growing quite rapidly in the uk at the moment where you actually take part in full-time work but then you also study alongside it so all of your qualifications your degree it all applies back to your work I think that's a really good way of doing it that's a very good point yeah you're right because we have these degrees in entrepreneurship and these masters in entrepreneurship and some people graduate from those and you know they think it's like graduating from medicine you're you're a doctor if you graduate from medicine or you're a lawyer if you graduate from law they think oh I've graduated entrepreneurship i'm an entrepreneur it's like (laughs) no not not really um yeah it's exactly right like it it, it's almost i always kind of joke nowadays that entrepreneurship is like a trade um and you know you learn it on the job uh just as if you were a a builder or a carpenter or an electrician um and you know if you think about who you went to school with and, and you reflect back on some of the people you know quite often some of the most successful people or, you know, financially successful people are people who did those trades from a young age and, you know, that they, they end up building big electrical businesses or big building companies or... Um, so I think, you know, we're in the entrepreneurship world and, and any educated middle-class world, we're predisposed to these white-collar jobs and, you know, this white-collar form of thinking. But, um, yeah, I think we shouldn't t- turn our nose up too much at the trades because I think... Um, entrepreneurship is very much a trade and um, yeah I, I think you know learning to get good on the tools and and good at all the different skill sets that entrepreneurship involves is a is a good mindset rather than kind of studying to become an entrepreneur mm-hmm. yeah I completely agree and I think sometimes as well it's just knowing one thing um, very well and understanding the basics of that thing you know for example you know electrics or carpentry um, by knowing just that that one thing or that 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 skill, you can then develop it and grow it. I think where the problem is, um, and certainly I've I've found this as well, is it's trying to know as many different things as possible and thinking and sitting down and going right. I've got all of this information. Where do I start? Whereas some people they just uh, they usually start with one idea, one simple mm. thing. They know the basics very well, and then they can grow their business from that. It's like jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think sometimes maybe it's a little bit better off to to sort of specialise. Um, so so you, you came out of um, uh, university. You got a job at university. Um, the next one, sort of looking on your on your timeline, um, is a startup marketing. It says that you were a founder of a marketing consultancy. How did you go from sort of working from a company to starting your own business? And what were the sort of trials and tribulations of doing that? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's definitely a big adjustment, and and part of it was, um, you know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, and I was I was actually doing the masters of entrepreneurship at the time, and it was two thousand and nine, um, and yeah, the global financial crisis was kind of in full swing, there was almost no marketing jobs um, at that point in time, so I was kind of working out, okay, I'm studying entrepreneurship. I don't think I'm ready to go out on my own yet. I think I'll get another marketing job and I'll keep studying and I'll finish my degree and then I'll become an entrepreneur, you know, this kind of delayed entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, was looking out for jobs. There wasn't much on offer. And 
all, the course that I was doing, you know, people had good ideas and, you know, there's lots of inventive and creative people in the course, but, and it was similar to my previous role. It was lots of good ideas coming through, but my, my skill set was primarily marketing. And I kind of thought, okay, lots of people are good at ideas, but not that many people are good at the, the marketing and the commercialization, the business development side. Um, so I, I, yeah, I've just set up this company called Startup Marketing. Uh, there wasn't that many startups back in 2009 in Australia. It was kind of, um, you know, startups are so well known now, but you know, I think there was like 25 people in Melbourne um, that were doing startups and that used to go to these meetups. So it was a really nascent industry. Um, and people used to say to me, oh, you know, why are you doing marketing for startups? There's no money in startups, you know. And now we see like these, you know, multiple billion dollar companies that, that are created every day. So it's just funny how much mm. the industry's changed. But um, yeah, we we worked with a number of early stage tech companies um, that were just really getting started. A lot of them didn't have much money at the time. So one of the challenges was exactly that, um, you know, making ends meet as a marketing company when you've, you've got clients. And, and we ended up pivoting that business too because for that exact reason, I think you could build a solid, you know, today with so many well-funded startups, I think you could build a very solid marketing company that addressed that market. But 10 years ago, it was, it was probably too nascent. Um, and we, we pivoted that business into um, an accelerator. So we had one of our clients come to us. He wanted us to build his website and do the marketing and, and really help him get this new product off the ground. And we had a few clients at that time and I, I didn't really like the idea he was doing. And, you know, he was capable of paying us money, but I didn't just want to, you know, charge him a retainer and do work for him if I didn't believe in the idea. And we kind of became friends over the, as we got working, he'd just sold his company to a UK company um and um and he kind of said oh if you know you had 100k what would you put it towards and yeah, i was a really mm -hmm. big fan of y combinator and and the accelerator model and textiles and I'm, i'd spoken to the textiles team over in colorado a few times on the phone and you know talked about the idea of bringing it to australia um and uh, yeah basically said to who ended up becoming my co-founder um I think there's a great opportunity to build an accelerator in Australia and, and we were one of the first to do so. So we launched that in 2011 and yeah, funded nearly 50 companies over like the next five years. And a lot of those went on to become successful companies. And, uh, and one of those, I, I actually joined full-time as a co-founder. So I'll, I'll talk more about that. But um, yeah, it was a really interesting period, kind of pivoting from marketing agency to an accelerator. Um, and the, the business model just worked so much better. It's a lot easier to give startups money than um, yeah, to, to ask them for money for services. So um, yeah, we had hundreds of startups apply to our very first accelerator and, and, and really picked some great companies that went through that program. So how many years was it since you'd left university? So when you did the, um, is it Angel Cube? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so how, how many years was it between the, between you leaving university and you doing that? So my, my point is, uh, obviously you must have been very very capable um, in order to be able to give um, money to startups and advice and information you know I, I often sometimes see it on Dragon's Den or I think the equipment in the US and other places is like Shark Tank of where they rip into businesses and they say oh you've not done this and not done that but sort of be at a youngest age and sort of investing into startups and, and immersing yourself into that world you must have had a very good knowledge of the entrepreneurial system yeah, so that's a very good question. Like, you know, if I reflect back on that, like, you know, to be totally transparent, I think I probably launched that 
venture too early in my career because, yeah, exactly as you picked up on, like I was 27 um, when I launched that Accelerator. I'd only really, I'd had you know, three, uh, nearly four years working for the university and three years with my own marketing company. Um, or th yeah, so it was really had only been working for in the workforce for six years or so and then founded this Accelerator. And, and the reason we kind of founded the Accelerator, it's almost like, I don't think I was the most qualified person, you know, in the country. And, and Melbourne's a big city, you know, say 4 million people. I think there were far more qualified people in Melbourne to set up an accelerator than I was. But just no one was doing it. And, and I remember going to this <laughs> angel investor meeting and there's Melbourne Angels, this group of, you know, 60 or 70 really high net wealth, successful business owners and um the president that ran the club, you know, really nice guy and, you know, supported a lot of businesses. But one of the, um, you know, these meetups that they did was like, you know, the future of venture capital and, you know, where that was headed. And they, they threw it open to an audience Q&A. Um, and I remember asking him, I said, you know, what do you think about accelerators? And and do you think the accelerator model would work in Australia? And and he kind of just laughed. He's like, oh, no, no, no. That that model only works in Silicon Valley. Um you know, that's that it's very unlikely that will come here to Australia and um and you know, there's we just don't have the network and the depth to, to do that. And I kind of thought, oh, okay. But you know, and you, you hear something like that, it's a bit deflating at first, but you know, part of entrepreneurship is ignoring the experts. Um and I respect that that guy and I still respect him to this day. And, you know, he is he had a lot more entrepreneurial experience than me. But, you know, I went ahead and and pushed it ahead anyway. Um, and the, one of the ways I compensated, I think for my, you know, I had some experience, but I, I think, you know, the beauty of the accelerator model is that the benefit for the accelerator is the mentors around the program. So one of the first things I started doing was recruiting the mentors into the program and, and going around and seeing, you know, all of the best tech entrepreneurs in Melbourne uh, and a lot of the best tech entrepreneurs around Australia and just said to them, do you want to be involved in Angel Cube? Do you want to come in and tell your story and share, you know, what you've built with these young entrepreneurs? Give them a bit of guidance, have a beer with them if they reach out and then be part of the community. And, you know, nearly everyone that we had that meeting with, I think we only had maybe three or four no's and, you know, 40 or 50 yeses. Um, so we had this amazing pool of mentors when we launched um, that were far more experienced than me. And, and, and my business partner, you know, had not necessarily more startup experience, but more, maybe more general business experience. And uh, between us, we, um, yeah, I think we built a really good network and the startups that went through the program. I almost saw myself as like the coordinator that was running around and facilitating and bringing in these great mentors and booking them in and helping the startups get time with them and get in front of them and get their pitch decks and get all the materials prepared so they were in a good state by the time they reached them. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't see myself as the, as the teacher or the Shark Tank person, I was more the, the facilitator. <laughs> um, and, um, and man, yeah, maybe that worked for me. Whereas nowadays, like with, you know, a lot more experience and, you know, raised a lot of money and sold a lot of, you know, sold some companies with some significant amounts now, I think I'd be, yeah, I'm definitely more qualified to, to perhaps run a program like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, but I've kind of, um, you know, since that experience of running a program like that, um, I'm much more a fan of building a company than perhaps building an accelerator because 
I think accelerators are amazing and they have their role to play. Um, but there's so many great global accelerators now with Techstars and Y Combinator and, and so many others and university affiliated programs that um, what the entrepreneurship scene really lacks now, and particularly in Australia, I think are more successful entrepreneurs. So um, yeah, I think my you know career aspirations have changed from wanting to invest in startups and I do a little bit of angel investing, but you know, I'd really like to build some, you know, a couple of significant companies that create a lot of opportunity and a lot of jobs and and some wealth um, that we can redeploy back into that the startup ecosystem. Because I think I, I saw an amazing quote on Twitter the other day that said most startup ecosystems are over mentored and under um, oh, sorry, under yeah, over mentored and underfunded. Yeah. And so I really want to get into a position where I can be more of an investor than a mentor. Um, because I think, you know, giving companies advice is great, but, you know, being able to tip in their first 500K or, or help them close a you know, $2 million round that, that really establishes them, um, that, that's a, you know, there's a definitely not enough people doing that, particularly in Australia. Yeah, I mm. think, as I mean, as I say, I'm only, I'm only 23 myself, you know, not, not had too much uh, experience in terms of the business and entrepreneurial world, but... One thing that I find as well, and especially speaking to a lot of people like yourself on the podcast, is um, a lot of people have done very well by trial and error. And you say by, you know, if you're sitting down every week and you're just speaking to these mentors, okay, that's fine. You're, you're learning from them, but oh, you're not going to really learn until you go out there and do it. And so you, as you say, you need that capital and that cash to be able to go and do these ideas and uh, uh, go and experience things. That, that's exactly right. Yep. Yep. It's, it's almost... Like we were talking about earlier, the learning by doing, I think that's that's spot on. And I think you can augment that too. Like trial and error is certainly one way. I think it's the most powerful. But, you know, even doing what you guys are doing now, like creating this podcast and having conversations with entrepreneurs and immersing yourself in the world. Um, there's, there's a fascinating example, I always think, a UK guy who I really like, um, you, you've probably heard of, is Harry Stebbings. Um, he's got this really good VC fund in, in London called Stride. And um, he's just started as a podcaster. He, I think he was 17. He was recording 20-minute uh, VC. And it was just 20-minute conversations mm-hmm. with some of the world's leading VCs. And that built his, his network and his experience. And he met, you know, pretty much every VC. That I, think he, I think he launched his own fund in his mid-20s or maybe even early 20s um, with a really significant, you know, UK partner, Fred Destin. So um, I think, um, yeah, learning by doing, but... Um, expanding a network and immersing yourself in the world of entrepreneurship uh, definitely accelerates it as well. Yeah, no, sounds good. And I, I guess this leads us on to the next point around, you know, what were your next steps and leading up to creating Strive? Perhaps talk about that a little bit, like what motivated you to start this this business and, and the steps that you took um, in between that period, you know, what really kicked it off? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so yeah, just quickly before I did Strive, but one mm-hmm. of the companies I built was a company called LifeX. Um, that's a smart lighting company. So that was my first experience with hardware. It was kind of an, a spin-out project of my accelerator. Um, and we, we did a Kickstarter. We had this light bulb that you could control from an app. We were one of the first to do it. Um, yeah, ended up raising nearly $20 million into that company. Uh, Sequoia led our Series A out of, um, out of Silicon Valley and... Yeah, really built that company out. It's now the number two 
smart lighting company in the world. So oh, wow. Philips, Philips is number one. They've got a product called the Philips Hue and LifeX, which was our funny little company out of Melbourne, um, is, is number, number two globally. Um, and yeah, and that was like, you know, being immersed in that world of accelerators and entrepreneurship. And that was one of the guys that went through our accelerator. That was his idea, but it was a side project and he needed a co-founder and yeah, I was ready to, to kind of, you know, start to think about what I wanted to do after the accelerator. So I jumped into that as a co-founder full time. Uh, and we built the business out and sold that a number of years later. But um, yeah, so I'd kind of had that experience building a, a light bulb. And when I was leaving LifeX, I was thinking what I wanted to do next. Um, mm-hmm. And LifeX is cool, like commercially it's successful and you, know, you can still buy it in many places in the UK, Australia, US, wherever. Um, but, you know, it's a great product, but it's like, you know, what? what's the meaning of that product, right? Like it's um, it's cool that you can turn your light on and off. And we had some amazing, <laughs> you know, and change the colors and, and you know, do fun stuff with it. But one of the most interesting cases that we had was like a customer that reached out um, that was wheelchair bound and was like, oh, you know, I can't reach the light switches in my house, but I just retrofitted the house, you know, got an electrician to put LifeX throughout my entire home and I can control my lighting sitting in my in my wheelchair for the, you know, the first time ever. And I kind of thought, shit, okay, this is cool. Like this is, you know, it's not just technology for technology's sake. This is like technology that can help people. Um, and when, when I was leaving LifeX, it was a bit, of, you know, it was a bit of an acrimonious split. Like my co-founder was, oh, you know, brilliant inventor but a bit of a classic steve jobs kind of uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> authoritarian <laughs> um and you know i kind of thought you know stuff these guys like i want to build something that's tech um but that has a bit of social impact uh, and a positive social impact and i kind of thought all right well the light bulbs you know ubiquitous item and we've had some success with that what's another ubiquitous item that we could you know make an internet of things product and add some social good to it. So I looked at a number of ideas um, and there was, you know, one of the ones I really liked is an American company called BioLite um, that make these like camp stoves, like in the developing world, something like, you know, 80% of people still cook on wood fire stoves um, and it causes all kinds of issues like um, carbon monoxide poisoning and uh, breathing difficulties from young kids and stuff. So they had this like campfire that could charge your phone. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like, but you know, it was one of the ideas I really liked. Um, so I thought, well, you know, what, what can we do that's like that? And I had this idea for the piggy bank and I'm like, Oh, you know, everyone knows what a piggy bank is. Um, yeah. You know, no one carries cash anymore. The, the world's moving to a cashless world. My son was about four at the time and I wanted to start teaching him about pocket money. So it was just a few kind of converging forces that I started mm-hmm. to think, and and the you know most people aren't financially literate either. I think the stats are something like, um, you know, eighty percent of Americans under under thirty have less than four hundred dollars in their savings account, and it's very similar in the UK and very similar in Australia. So, you know, and I think financial literacy. You know, if you can learn how to save and learn how to invest and learn how to live bit, you know, within your means you know, you can set yourself up for so much success because you don't have to work in a job that you hate to make ends meet. Um, you know, financial literacy gives you optionality and, and optionality lets you spend time on doing what you love and doing what you love leads to success. So 
I think financial literacy really ties into entrepreneurship really well. Um, and, you know, I'm passionate about both now. I was just passionate about entrepreneurship, but now I'm kind of really, you know, these are my two areas that I'm really keen on. And Strive is really a manifestation of both. It's, you know, it's entrepreneurship because I think we're building a product that has global appeal mm -hmm. um, that, that kids can learn about and interact with from an early age. And it's, it's fun and cute. Um, but, um, but yeah, but, you know, if you learn about financial literacy and learn about investing from an early age, then, you know, by the time you're 18 or you're, you're much better equipped to kind of set yourself on a life path that you want to go down versus, um, yeah, versus just like letting money dictate where you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Joe and I talk about this all the time. We're sort of saying like this, the subjects that you get to at school, especially in the UK, you know, they're all very academic, fine, but we never get sort of like financial studies or learn about tax, learn about mortgages. It's very rare, you know, unless you've got the bespoke classes that you sign up to, we don't get taught about the real world of work and, and you know, financial. So I, I think it's so important to have these different channels where people can, you know, tap in, especially where it's like parents as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's, there's such a lack of tools out there for parents to teach kids about financial literacy. And, and if they are, that they're, they're usually books. Um, it's usually there's one in Australia called The Barefoot Investor, and uh, it's written a really good book. I think they've sold four or five mm -hmm. million copies of this book. Um, but you know, like, yeah, reading a book is one way, um, and there's lots of merit in that. But mm -hmm. you know, kids, kids learn through play, and you know, you can all we all remember the toys we grew up with and watching like. I don't know, <laughs> Sesame Street, if that was big in the UK when you guys were growing up. Um, it certainly was, yep. was in Australia. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's that. That was like, okay, that you know, there's content out there, but it's it's a bit dry. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's really our philosophy with Strive is mm -hmm. how do we make it tactile? How do we make money, which is no longer um, tactile, how do we bring that back into the environment where kids can see it, interact with it, play with it? Um, and that that's exactly what the, the piggy bank's all about. Yeah and, yeah, and also just another point is I think a lot of the information is dated. So when, you know, like my parents' age, for example, they went through a whole different journey in terms of their career. You know, their, their theory is you've got to save all your money. You know, you've got to buy houses. Cash is king. Their investment choices are completely different to ours now and they don't really have insight you know they're they're very wary of things like bitcoin crypto they have no i'm not even going to start with them on nfts because it will completely go, go over their heads so it, it's nice that you're bringing in like new ways of learning about these financial services and you know what, what's going on right now investments and things like that that are quite new and current rather than just you know because a lot of parents they're a completely different generation right they don't really know where to start with yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and we've had, you know, a little bit of criticism as well. People will say, there was a funny article in the Express, if you're familiar with that newspaper, um, just over the weekend. And it was it was talking about Strive and it was a bit critical. It's, you know, it's a conservative newspaper with a conservative readership base. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a funny article. I wonder if we can link to it in the show notes. But, you know, <laughs> there was a, a former uh, member of House of Lords in the UK was saying, this is like giving children a Ladbrokes account. <laughs> so I was kind of, I was kind of chuckling, <laughs> chuckling to myself that I'm like, "Is like you know, an Australian entrepreneur has managed to annoy this former House of Lords?" You know, while while sitting on the couch in the Sunshine Coast, it's amazing how global the world is now. Um, but yeah, but 
it, it's you know when we have you know we kind of acknowledge that there is crypto is far from a safe bet um but there's so many products out there. if you just want to give the kids a little bit of pocket money and a debit card and pay them for their chores you can do that there's so many ways to do that there's great products like go henry and osper and uh, in australia there's one called spriggy and the us there's green light um so that that part of the market you know giving kids a little bit of money giving them a card and getting them familiar with fiat currency that that exists um but where the gap is and, and you're exactly right hannah that it's that you know the money is changing um and and the to be truly financially literate nowadays, I'm very much of the opinion that that you need to be somewhat tech literate as well, because if you understand what cryptocurrency is, if you understand what a smart contract is, uh, and you understand what an NFT is and what that unlocks, you know, that puts you a long way ahead um, of your peers and colleagues that might only understand, you know, getting money for a job or, or mm-hmm. getting money on their debit card and then spending that money. So, yeah, you know, I'm of the opinion that money is now programmable um, and and you really need to teach kids that money is not just something you get and spend, it's something you can program and you can you can interact with. And my joke is every dollar coin has an API now is, is kind of the, the way that I think about the future of money. The thing is as well, I think a lot of um, sort of older people are are quite scared. I don't, I don't even know if scared, it's the... So the mass adoption of, of crypto is very, um, it seems very alien to people. You know, it's like Hannah said, like, you know, our parents, well, there's no point mentioning crypto to them. But there is a chance within the next five to ten years that they might have to be using crypto anyway. You know, we don't know how how it's going. You know, the, the crypto space seems to be evolving every single day. But it does seem that there are like a certain portion of people that are sort of rejecting it. Whereas this could be the reality where... You know, we could be using crypto. You could for here, there, and everywhere. So it is it's sort of um, very interesting. And I think what you're doing as well is 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 brilliant with the strive. You know, and I think my mum always says the same thing with like uh, with like a phone. She says, "Oh, well, you grew up with it. You know how to use it." And I think by having something similar with the strive and with the piggy bank, getting them, uh, getting kids to to learn it early. You know, by the time that they they grow up and they become adults they already have that experience with it and they'll know exactly what to do and i think that that's that's critical uh, yeah i think you're exactly right that that's it it's here to stay it's not going anywhere and i listened to a really good podcast recently i think it was tim ferris um and um oh, a us vc who's from uh, andreessen horowitz i've forgotten his name actually but um he was saying you know we we now say fiat and crypto you know, we have two types of money now. Um, no one used to know what fiat was. Like, you know, we used to say fiat. Mm. You would think of you would think of the car company. Um, <laughs> if you, <laughs> you wouldn't think of as a type of money. So, um, yeah, I think it's you, you know, and fiat has its own problems too. Is like I'm sure you guys are obviously well aware. It's, you know, it's 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 constantly devalued. We've printed more money in the last twelve months. Um, you know, well, 25% of the money supply that's in circulation today has been printed in the last 12 months. Um, inflation is starting to kick in. Um, we live in a zero-interest economy. We can put your money in the bank. Most banks in Europe will actually charge you 
it's not it's negative interest now they'll charge you to have your own money in the bank so mm. so fiat fiat's being devalued every single day um and the people that you know we've had people criticize us and i kind of welcome that criticism because it opens the conversation to go well you know have you thought about fiat currency and the and the issues there and and how your dollar losing purchase loses purchasing power every single day um and and you know the idea of compound interest is the seventh or the eighth wonder of the world as einstein said um none of the banks pay compound interest anymore so i think this learning about money now and, and as we've seen it's not just about thinking about crypto as a form of money it's really a form of wealth creation and an asset uh and a a bridge almost that you can build things on top of like ethereum is the you know a global computer that you can build other things on top of so you know kids are very tech savvy um and and the, the more exactly said joe the more you can familiarize them with it and they pick it up anyway my son's only six and you know they talk about bitcoin at play lunch you know they like a guy. <laughs> my god <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a friend that's two and he sent me a video of his son he was you know he he, son, his son was saying Bitcoin at two was one of his like first 10 words. I was like, it's just unbelievable. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> and the, and the, the kind of the point is too, it's like, you know, you, it's about giving them choice as well. Like I'm, I was just doing this with my son saying, you know, he's, he's losing a few teeth. He's at that age where, you know, you, you're just about to turn seven and um, a few missing teeth and, and the tooth fairy's coming and I give him the option. I said, do you want the tooth fairy, do you want the tooth fairy to put $5 under your pillow or do you want $5 of, of Bitcoin? And he always says, oh, no, no, I want the Bitcoin because it's, because it's got, because it's into it and, and he likes seeing it going up. That is hilarious. Goes, yeah. <laughs> what a good idea. Yeah, I'm just going to make just, it onto the, uh, onto the Reddit forums where it's have a hundred grand tooth um <laughs> when bitcoin hits a million <laughs> <laughs> that's so true yeah you're right and um yeah i think you know that kids have got this interest anyway so like you know provide some tools to engage you, you it's almost like a shared hobby there's so many parents that love crypto anyway and, and there's kids that are you know getting interest in it so it's like i think that's what strive's all about really it's like can we equip the hobbyist geeky parent um with the curious kid and give them a shared set of tools that they bond over and play with and, and have fun together with. No, perfect. Perfect. We'll say we, we come across, um, strive, uh, on Instagram and I encourage everyone to go over to, to the Instagram account. And there's much more information and resources, um, about strive. If you are interested, um, and learn a little bit more purchasing. Am I right in saying that it's not currently launched at the moment, or is it's, or we can order now if you was interested? Yeah, correct. It's it's pre-order at the moment. We've we've built and shipped the product before. It was a Kickstarter originally, so we did the Kickstarter and we we shipped all those units out. Um, and then we were, were long story short, we were acquired by another company that we were partnered with in Europe. Um, so it was a effectively a merger slash acquisition joint forces with them uh and then together we've been rebuilding the brand the website so we rebranded actually we were originally called go save um but kind of saving was a bit limited and um yeah joint forces with this company became strive um 
piggy banks hit the market again in August and um, and our, our NFT project as well. Uh, these little toys that we're making called Top Mines are launching this Friday as well. So um, we kind of see Strive now as like an incubator for um, for these kind of fintech ideas. They're, they're all our ideas that we're generating internally, but the piggy bank, the NFT and and kind of other projects that we're, we're thinking about for the future um, all under the same parents and kids theme. But um, yeah, just really creating a suite of products that, that, that families can use. And talk about, sorry, just top minds for a little bit, because I, I don't have too much of an understanding. I know you mentioned it. Um, can you like just let us know, or the, the listeners that perhaps aren't familiar with these terms, um, just get to understand what you mean by NFT games or what you're, what you're, what you're actually providing here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So um, obviously we've got the, the piggy bank. It's a physical piggy bank with a, mm-hmm. a four and a half inch screen. Parents have an app and they download that app and sync their Coinbase account and, and show the kids the the um, the crypto on the piggy bank. But yeah, we started to, as NFTs were taking off, I, I was buying um, Top Shots, which uh, these they're basically digital basketball cards. Yeah. Um, and some of the listeners might might be buying those and, and playing with those at the moment. I've always been a big NBA fan. I used to collect um, yeah, and NBA cards when I was like 10. I've still got my really old collection. Mm-hmm. And my son likes flipping through that. And um, yeah, and then I was buying Top Shots because I was interested in the cards and my son was enjoying it too. And, and then we we're kind of learning about NFT and the technologies and, you know, without kind of boring the audience too much but obviously like a lot of people have looked into it but if you haven't it's a, a non-fungible token and where it differentiates from a cryptocurrency that's essentially fungible you can create you know millions or um you can divide it and everything like that um an nft is just a single undividable item on a blockchain um and yeah it can be artwork it can be uh, you know royalties of a song it can be really any ip and i think i saw someone say a really good analogy recently that it was almost like um you know the internet has enabled us to really do commerce and it's enabled us to do um you know streaming and music music games and videos and it's the internet unlocked that side of the market and nfts have just as much potential but for assets um, for physical items, for stocks, for shares, for collectibles, um, you know, creating, it really brings those physical items into the digital world and, and creates a digital artifact that matches that product. So, yeah, we, but long story short, we were working on, you know, this idea of bringing in an NFT into our into our product. And one of the things I, you know, collecting top shots, I like them, but, you know, I still like my old physical basketball cards too. Mm-hmm. and you know and kids like that too like my son was like oh he didn't really like the top shots that much he was curious about them but then lost interest in them very quickly and so did i to be honest i've got a whole bunch of top shots that are sitting there and they don't really do anything like you know they just sit in my wallet and they go up and they go down so they're like a speculative asset but i was thinking okay well kids love toys um and you know is there something we could do that would basically, you know, could we make a collection of toys and each toy has an NFT or the other way around, you know, can we make a collection of NFTs and each NFT has a toy? 
So it's blending those two. Um, and yeah, we've created the world's first collection of toys uh, backed by an NFT. Um, they're based on the top 100 people through history. So they're called Top Minds. Um, there's, um, yeah, a whole range of them. Um, we're launching our first six on Friday, but it's like uh, Nikola Tesla, uh, Ada Lovelace. She was the first ever computer programmer. Uh, Marie Curie, she was the, um, she, she's the first ever person to win the Nobel Prize in two categories. Um, and Abraham Lincoln um, and, and, and a couple of others that, they, these Top Minds toys, they're minted on the blockchain. There's only a hundred of them. So if you have a Top Minds toy, um, it actually has an NFC chip in it. So you can tap your phone on its head, which is kind of funny. Oh, wow. Uh, and and that's the, that it actually brings up a record and it shows your ownership on the blockchain and a bit of history about that character. So with Nikola Tesla, we've got a bio, we've got a list of his patents. Um, we've got a little bit of a brief history, some some rich content there that comes up when you tap the NFC chip uh, and shows you your minted ownership of that one of a hundred um, first ever um, top line that's created. So, so it's really a verified collectible. Um, and, you know, basketball cards, like, you know, I've got like, I don't know, like a Shaq rookie card that I collected when I was 10 that you would think would be valuable because, you know, that's 30 years ago and or almost 30 years ago. Um, but, you know, they printed millions of these things and they're, you know, I think they're worth a hundred bucks at the most. Um, and if you can verify that a collectible you know, is rare um, and unique, uh, then then I think that's there's so much more potential. So, so Top Minds is kind of really fun. Like it's, you know, it's a project that's fun and hopefully educational because, you know, you collect a Nikola Tesla or an Einstein or an Ada Lovelace, you know, you're teaching kids about who that person is and what they achieved. Um, but also like the technology that underpins that product um, is, is really interesting. So our, our plan is to actually make that available to any creator, any brand, any maker that wants to verify their items. Um, and um, yeah, that, that's a, that's probably going to be a, another business entirely because um, you know, the, the um, counterfeit market is just, it's one of the biggest markets in the world. Um, $4.2 trillion worth of goods are counterfeited every year. Um, and so we, we think that the technology we've developed for top mines uh, could equally be applied in any other product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you said about counter counterfeits, the, the first thing that I thought about was all designer clothes and, you know, if, um, and shoes and jewellery and that, you know, if someone said, oh, you know, that's a fake, um, I don't know, Gucci, whatever, you could go, oh, look here, look at my crypto wallet, I've got me the NFT for this T-shirt. But no, as you said, I think the NFT world, um, the verification of it and, and the verifiability um, is amazing. You know, it, I was watching a documentary on Netflix the other day about art forgeries and that, and it's like, well, now we can just look on the blockchain and see, yep, no, that's the real one, no, that one's a fake. It, it, it just does cut out all of that um that mystery so whether something is real or not that's exactly right yep it is it's just like instead of kind of trying to determine based on the look of it and like you know pretty inefficient factors like even like holographic stickers and all that stuff can be so easily copied but um yeah just this combination of an nfc chip paired to a blockchain um it's it's a much more um robust kind of 
system for verification. It's fascinating as well, just the way you've explained that whole process. It, <laughs> I, I understand it now because obviously we've done a lot of research on NFTs, and but it, it really is mind blowing. You know the extent that you could actually take this. It is huge. So um, that's a really exciting project. And especially because you're aiming towards, you know, the younger generation, it's going to become more of a norm for them, right? They're just being brought up into this world. I think it's for us, it's quite strange because we're in that transitional period where we grew up quite in, like in the traditional ways, but then we're now being introduced to all this technology and we're seeing that turnover. It's, it's quite strange for us. But I think the new generation, this will just be the norm for them, right? So, I mean, it's great that you're incorporating it now and you're actually starting to look into different ideas and designs is, is, is excellent. Um, so just a, a couple of final questions from me. So what are your plans then for the next uh, six to 12 months, short-term, medium-term plans? Have you got any big goals for your companies or, or what are some some key achievables that you want to reach? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so I'm across a few companies at, at the moment. Um, obviously, Strive is is one of my, my major companies, but... Um, since I sold LifeX, um, you know, I'm in, in the position now where I, I have some companies that I'm founding and others that I'm investing in and, mm. and playing a slightly more passive role. So I kind of have a bit of a portfolio approach nowadays where uh, I'm not just doing the one company and, and you know, making that my sole occupation. It's now almost like a venture capitalist, but, um, but more of an operational role. Like I don't invest in companies that often that, that aren't, companies that i've either co-founded or or created um so overall in the little portfolio that you know, it's only a handful of companies but strive is certainly one of the major ones um i've got a an insure tech called upshore um that's really growing very quickly now here in australia that we're looking to bring to the uk as well um and and really and obviously like you know commercializing this um this verification system as well i think there's you know, what we're doing at Top Minds is really cool and fun and I'm excited about that. But the that anti-counterfeit measure is a really interesting piece of the puzzle as well. So there's a handful of others too that I'm investing in and advising. But the goals for Strive are really to... Um, we're raising like a venture round at the moment, you know, getting that squared away, um, you know, getting around 10,000 piggy banks out there with various families and and selling a large proportion of these top minds where we're actually creating um you know there's 100 characters there's 100 of each character so that's 10,000 toys um so the goal of the next 12 months is to really you know sell out that entire collection so mm -hmm. we can say the first collection of top minds is sold out and then launching a second collection of top minds um so it's really just kind of you know getting some success and some growth across the portfolio um and and really establishing each of the companies and um and and kind of continuing to innovate i think i'm, I'm very much of the opinion now that you want to you know create uh, a structure that you can innovate with within and i think strive's really exciting now because we've got the piggy bank we've got top minds um but there's you know there's so many other opportunities in crypto from farming and staking and you know even creating different currencies and things so we yeah we we definitely want to get some success in the in the the main part of what we're doing with the piggy banks and the nfts but um yeah i'm kind of excited about the different things drive could be doing over the next few years and um but i think it's just more about you know making progress in each of the businesses and getting them to a point where they're all 
self-sustaining and performing well um, and, and looking to kind of, you know, over time, um, you know, perhaps sell off some or a portion of, of these companies and kind of growing the, the concept of this um, of this incubator. And, um, yeah, we've got a really good team on each of the projects. There's a, there's a great team at Strive and, and there's lots of crossover, the team at Strive, you know, some of them work for us at Upshore and um, some of us work, you know, on other investments and ventures. So, um, yeah, kind of just building a little ecosystem around what we're doing. And um, that, that's really my focus nowadays. It's, it's all about keeping a core group of really good people together. And then mm-hmm. that core group can build a number of ventures. Um, whereas in the past, you know, I've worked with co-founders who are a bit more transactional that are just thinking, you know, they just think about that one business. Um, and, you know, I think that that has a place. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, that's why these venture capital firms are so successful, like Sequoia and uh, Andreessen and Horowitz and things like this, because they have an amazing portfolio. Um, and I think, you know, you can have an amazing portfolio as an individual. You don't have to have a venture capital shop. Um, if you've got a great team around you and you innovate, then you can build a portfolio of, of interesting companies. So, yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm, I'm really working on. I guess it's a little, um, a little collection that, um, that I think, yeah, should be quite successful over the next ten years. Just got one potentially. So, say you're quite, um, well, oh, certainly inspirational. You know, listening to your story um, over this last hour has certainly given me a lot of inspiration and sort of motivation as well. Hopefully, our listeners can agree. But one thing um, is that I'd like to ask is just what what advice would you give to a budding entrepreneur? If you could speak to um, young Andrew, um, who's fresh out of university, um, and you say, look, here's your one piece of advice. What you it's easier to launch a big idea than a small idea. Uh, so don't be afraid to just pick the biggest market and the biggest idea that you can think of and really go for that and build a team around that. Because I think, you know, if I let reflect on you know, my early part of my career, um, the marketing company was cool and it led to the accelerator and that led to other opportunities. Um, but I think I always saw myself as, you know, playing a supporting role with other people's ideas. And I was, you know, um, whereas I think the best way to learn entrepreneurship really is to, you know, kind of have your own ideas and build a team around it and go after the big ideas and, and pull that team together and, and be in control of your own destiny. I think if you play a two IC role or, you know, third co-founder or fourth co-founder role, you're at the mercy of someone else's dream and ambition and you're still an entrepreneur. Um, but, um, but it's almost like having a job, you know, if you're not the main driver of that company, you're, you're a founder of it, but you're somewhat of an employee of that company. And, and when you're the founder and CEO and it's your idea and your innovation, that's real entrepreneurship um, because, you know, you can decide where the company goes. Uh, and, of course, you build a great team around you. But um, I think don't be afraid to get in there, back yourself, do your own ideas and, and appoint yourself founder CEO because I think um, that's where you get to learn the most. And if it works, you know, you're in the box seat to capitalise on that um, because, you know, successful startups get political and if you're not found the CEO, um, you're not truly in control of that company. So um, 
there's a whole separate story in that, but um, you know, we sold LifeX for 72 million Australian. Um, and, you know, I, I should have, uh, I should have earned, you know, probably 50% of that, but, um, you know, I wasn't in control of the company by the time it was sold and, and earned a fraction of that. So, um, yeah, I've had other successful ventures and investments since, but that's, it's almost like a bit of a fishing story. If I had a retained, um, you know, as founder CEO of that company, I would have, I think I would have driven it to a much bigger exit and I would have had a much larger stake in it. Um, and, you know, that might have just been a lack of confidence in my own ideas at that point. And I, I think it's similar for a lot of young entrepreneurs. You're always waiting. You know, you wait till you finish this course or you wait till you graduate or you're, you're always waiting for something. Whereas, you know, no, there's no time like the present to go, right, here's a big idea. Let's get cracking on it. Let's get it rolling. Let's start to pitching to, to good investors and, and getting the thing moving. Um, so, yeah, I think, long-winded answer but my short version would be yeah just back yourself pick a big idea and, and really give it everything and and see what happens no perfect brilliant well so we won't take up too much of your time uh anymore thank you so much for for coming on this is uh it, it's been brilliant so i've been taking notes throughout this and um i think the things that you've said and, and the, the laugh that you've done so far is it's been exceptional and we wish you all the luck with Strive. Um, I hope that, that that really takes off. Um, so we'll be including your, uh, all the social medias um, and any links in the show notes and also on our Instagram page as well. So um, if you do want to check out more about Strive, then um, uh, go onto our Instagram page and we have tagged in uh, Strive into a couple of posts recently. So you can see all the great work that they're doing over there. Yeah, and just to echo that, Andrew, a brilliant, brilliant episode. So much useful information, especially for our listeners as well. I'm, I'm, I feel truly inspired to be honest. It's just really great to hear. <laughs> it's, it's really nice to just hear other people's experiences, their journeys, the challenges that they face, because everyone's got a different story to tell, right? So, really, really appreciate your time and you coming on today. Um, loads of gems dropped in this episode. It's brilliant. So, thank you so much. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on. And um, yeah, all the best. And um, yeah, keep in touch. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you get your podcast from and check us out on Instagram at The First Quarter Club. See you next week.